0: If you would please turn to First John, chapter five, at a girl. Verses six through thirteen. I'll be reading First John, five verses six through thirteen. <coughs> okay. This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify. The Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that He is born concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, inspired, Eternally true word. Father, grace me with the ability to teach, to deal with what you gave your servant John to write, and what we just read, and that we hear it and reread it and reread it and illustrate it and say it's this and not that. Help me do this and help me do it accurately. For our souls' sake and for the glory of Jesus' sake, I pray. and Work amongst us, Father. Work by Your Spirit. Work with that internal testimony on hearts and souls. And if any in here have not yet come to Your Son, drag them so that they will joyfully say yes to the glory of Your name. Amen. These are some of the most important words ever written on planet earth. Every person in this room will live their last 60 minutes of life and die. Whether that death comes unexpectedly at a young age, or whether you are all shriveled up and wrinkled and lying in a bed at age 93. These words are about the meaning of your existence. And Trust me, we all want to know them and we want to embrace them. Verse 11, And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. This life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And let me say, to you who are believers, that verse, and there's many other, but this verse will be your comfort when you know you're breathing your last few breaths. So, before I get to the text and we look at the flow now of what John's going to say. This is one of those times where I can't avoid having to deal with a textual problem. Okay. Now what I mean is this. It is called in the history, the last 500 years in theology, the Johannine comma. Johannine for John, in this comma problem. What I mean is this. For 400 years now, readers in English and other languages, but let's just stick here. Readers of the Bible in English, meaning particularly the King James Version, which was one of the greatest translations ever, and it had been in the English-speaking world for centuries. THE standard translation. So, for 400 years readers of 1st John In the King James Version, and then also, over the last three or four decades, the New King James Version, updated into more American idiom and language, they have been reading a bunch of extra words that you don't have in your text unless you have a King James Version or a New King James Version. Look down at verses 7 and 8. See it? Just two lines. But let me read from the King James Version. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth." All those words are not in your version if you have an ESV, an NIV, a New American Standard Bible. All you have is for there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. Nothing about this Trinitarian formula, the Father, the Word, who is the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So what in the world is is going on? And see, there is a discipline, uh, and a really important discipline, an academic discipline, called textual criticism, which there are those, some scholars devote their lives to looking at the over 5,000 New Testament Greek manuscripts, handwritten that all the way up until the 1500s or so, and look at them and say, we want to get to what is the original, because we have none of the original autographs or writings like of Paul or John. Oh, there it is. We would be worshipping that. And paper grows old. Papyrus grows old. Vellum, they deteriorate. They get lost. And so they copy and copy and copy. And textual criticism, therefore, is comparing these things saying, well, did they make a copy error here? Oh, we can see that. And there's, I don't, I, I don't want to spend on more, and you can ask me later about it. Let me just give you one illustration. If I were to take ten of you and say, go home and at five o'clock bring to me your handwritten copy of First John in the ESV version, and you all did it and you came with me, I promise you every one of you would have made an error. Some of Over here, Alex would have skipped an entire line. Yeah, you would have. (laughs) Because both of those lines might have started with the word AND in English and you went boom and you went to copy and then you picked up on the other AND and you didn't know you did it. Some of you may miss a phrase, but so a different error than him. And out of those ten, all these errors would be a little bit different. They're copying errors. Now what happens is, we take Alex's and this guy goes, has ten other people copy that. And guess what? Gonna, you're gonna see that genetic thing happening in his family. And then the other error over here will be copied ten times. And then a hundred years later, those ten will be copied another ten times. And you'll see that same error. But how do we know what was really originally written? Well, because we can look at the families, and you, you put them together in families, we see, all oh, these are coming from Knucklehead over here. There's the grandfather, and, and that's that error. How come because we look at these 10 other families, they are all agreeing that line belongs there. And so there's, there's, a, there's a basic, common-sense, scientific way to go about this. That's textual criticism and a lot more we're done with that. What's happening here? Well, in 1522, this is all during the beginning of the Reformation, Erasmus, who was a great scholar in, in mind of the late Renaissance and through that era, he never he always remained Roman Catholic, Luther even wrote him a letter, they had some debates and arguments on theology, but Erasmus went about putting together a Greek text from all the manuscripts that we have. And then in 1522, these words found its way into his Greek text and all the subsequent ones thereafter, which we call in Latin, the Received Text. Or in Latin you say it this way, Textus Receptus. I know I'm going to lose some people. So, so, so what happened? Well, when Erasmus f- came out with his first version of his Greek text, saying, what is the reading? Here's the text. Read it. Luther read Greek. Translated into German. Okay? And on and on and on. His first version omitted these words. It wasn't in there. And his second version omitted those words. And the reason Erasmus omitted them is because he couldn't find those words anywhere in all the Greek manuscripts he had. Now, So what probably happened? In the 300's was the century uh, where the trinity and the debates about the trinitarian formula were happening from 325 Nicaea all the way to Chalcedon in about 370's. That's what was going on and then translations were happening because not everyone spoke Greek. St. Augustine never could read Greek. spoke Latin. The more west you were, and by the 300s, you were losing the Greek language. And Latin in the west was the predominant language. And so in, the La- in Latin translations, this is what we think happened. In the margin, which a lot of times, trans when they would copy, 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 they would put notes in a margin or something. And probably this Trinitarian form in a Father, the Word and the Holy Spirit got put in the margin and then another copyist later, that just kind of slipped right into the text. And it eventually found its way into the Latin Vulgate. Some of you heard the term, some of you haven't. The Latin Vulgate was the Latin translation of the Bible that was the authoritative Bible for the Western Church. That means the Roman Church. Oh, that means the Roman Catholic Church for the next thousand years. Okay? And there it is. And here's Erasmus. 1516 to 1522. Putting together his Greek text and he omits it. Everything hit the fan. He was hammered. But he is a very honest, top-notch scholar. He said, look, it's, I can't find it in any of the Greek texts. I mean, if I found it there, I'd put it in there. Well, guess what? It wasn't too long before they brought him some text that had it in it. It was really manufactured. And in 1522, under pressure, Erasmus put it in to his Greek text. They translated it from the Latin and into Greek and said, "Here it is." Okay, all right, I'm done. My point is this: those words that I read to you from the King James, the New King James Version, that are in the Textus Receptus, are not original. John didn't write them. Okay, was that okay? It wasn't too painful, right? All right, all right. Let's go to what he did write. In this passage here now, John has been flowing, he's been answering the question about who is Jesus Christ and what does it take to be saved by Him. And so what he's unfolding now in this passage is how is it that anyone can come to faith in Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Those are the terms he uses in the paragraph previously. And John's answer here is this, it depends on a testimony and the validity of the testifier. Look at verse 6. He writes, This is He, he's been talking about Jesus, is the Christ and the Son of God. Verse 1 and verse 5. And now, this is He, who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and the blood. What in the world is He doing? In church history, there are three interpretations of water and blood. First was this, oh, he's referring to the two sacraments. Martin Luther held it, John Calvin held it. Remember, they rejected the five other sacraments in the Protestant Reformation that the Roman Church had. So, this refers to baptism and it refers to the Eucharist, the the Lord's Supper, communion. It just doesn't work. I mean, if he meant the Eucharist, why would he just say the blood? and not the body. And the other thing is just the language that John uses, the verb. He says, He, Jesus, came. It's an aorist tense, not a present tense. Not Jesus is coming to us through baptism and the Eucharist, but He came, an historical present. John's not referring to the Eucharist in in that way, in our baptism. Another interpretation of this text was water and blood. I've seen that before. The Roman soldier thrust his spear into Jesus' side and out came water and blood. But again, the language that John uses just won't work. The text says Jesus came through, dia in the Greek, through water and blood. Not water and blood came out of Jesus. So, the third view, which I hold, I think it's just plain and it's clear, is what John means. And that is the water refers to Jesus' baptism. The blood refers to his bloody substitutionary death on the cross. In other words, he's referring to Jesus' historical manifestation as a human being, and he did come through the baptism, being baptized by John, where the Father testified, This is my beloved Son. And that very same Christ also went through death His blood. That's what John's getting at. Jesus' baptism and His blood. Why? Well, if you remember the context for why John is writing this letter. He is dealing with a heresy. A, a major false teaching concerning the person and the work of Jesus. These false teachers distinguished between the human Jesus, the man, and the Christ spirit from heaven. That's heresy. And this is what John's dealing with. See, they were teaching that Jesus was a mere man, born of Mary and Joseph, and then at His baptism, you see the dove, the Father speaks, the Christ Spirit comes upon Jesus for His ministry. And He ministers in the power as the Christ. And then the Christ Spirit departs from Him before The humiliation of the cross. The Christ Spirit, the divine, would have nothing to do with physical, becoming physical. It's it's evil in and of itself. This Greek idea was floating in. Much less a, a humiliating death of a public legal execution. There's no way the divine Christ would go through that. So who died on the cross? Jesus, not the Christ. But Jesus, the mere man. That's what they're teaching. And John is refuting this teaching. He knows that the Divine, Eternal One, the Christ, didn't merely come upon a human, but that Christ became human in Mary. He was the Christ at his birth, he was the Christ at his baptism, and he was identical to the Christ in his bloody death. That's John's point. And therefore here he describes him as, quote, "He who came through water, baptism." The heretics had no problem with that. Yeah, that the Christ came on him and blood. They had a huge problem with that. Verse 6 again, This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water baptism only, but by the water and the blood. He's saying He who came from heaven is one and the same. Is that truly human being, soul and body? At his baptism and at his bloody death. That's why John emphasizes the death. Just hear it again how he put it. He says it, it came by water and blood, and then he. Why does he do this? Not by water only that they're teaching, but by the water, the baptism, and the blood. John is clear. That's the Gospel. He's talking about this is not a Christ Spirit come upon, otherwise, a mere man. This is the incarnation. This is God becoming truly man, truly human. And He makes a bloody atonement for sin. And then John progresses. Read on. And the Spirit is the one who testifies. Because the Spirit is the truth. So in verse 6, His grammatical construction is clear. Jesus, historically, He came, and He came through water baptism, and He was on that cross, that Christ, the God-man, historically, aorist tense, He did that. And then He switches to the present tense. And the Holy Spirit is the One presently when He writes 80-90. And by implication, this morning. He is the one who testifies to that historical account. The Holy Spirit was testifying and is testifying to what happened in history and was proclaimed by eyewitnesses. Isn't that how Jesus said it? John 15, But guys, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, and he defines what he means, the Spirit of Truth, John's very words here, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will testify about me. Same word. Bear witness or testify about me. And John says this, in our passage. He'll do this because the Spirit is the truth. So Christians take the historical message of the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that happened when an angel appeared to a woman gave birth to a human being who is God, etc. And you go through the Gospel. You get to the cross. You get to the resurrection. Paul says this is what we do. We, in, in 1 Corinthians 1, right? We preach Christ crucified. That's, there's John right there. Through the blood. We preach Christ crucified. And people either laugh at it and say you're out of your mind or they're too religious and they can't take that. It's too offensive to them and they never believe. But of course... Paul went on to say, but to those who are called, Christ, that is in the hearing of the historical message, Christ to them becomes the power of God and the wisdom of God. Why? Because of the call. Or, say it the way John says it, because of the indwelling. Testifying. The whispering of God, the Holy Spirit, saying, It's true. And they come. He testifies to the gospel. So John is letting us know there are two testimonies that go together are essential, and they result, when those two come together, they result in the eternal salvation of sinners. There is the objective testimony, and there is the subjective testimony. The objective is the historical water baptism in blood that Jesus shed in history. It is. This is what happened. Period. Doesn't matter whether you believe it, agree with it, or not. There's the objective historical account that God is testifying about through what he did in his son Jesus and through the apostles whom he has chosen to be eyewitnesses. It's part of God's testimony, it's objective. It's historical. That's how John started off the letter, remember? That which we was from the beginning, which we have seen, which we have heard, seen with our eyes, looked upon, and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. And the life was made manifest and we have seen it and proclaimed to you the eternal life. They're saying, we are testifying to in a historical reality, an event where I hand-touch witnesses. The way he just re-says it in our text is, this is the Jesus who came by water baptism and His blood, one and the same as the Christ. And then there's the subjective testimony. And that is the personal experience of every sinner who hears that objective testimony. It is their personal experience of coming to saving faith in it. And it's because of the Holy Spirit who convinced them, testified to it. In verses 7 and 8, John makes it clear those three Jesus it is water baptism. This is My beloved Son who, with whom I'm well pleased along with His bloody death and along with then the work of the Spirit throughout the ages testifying to it. He says it right here. Verse 7, For there are three that testify the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree, they are one, literally they are one, they agree. This is evangelism. This is how people are converted to Christ. Read it all together. This is He who came by water baptism and His blood That is Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree. Jesus came to earth as a human being, in order to fulfill a specific mission. And John sums it up right here with these two prominent events. his water baptism, and a voice spoke from heaven, This is my beloved Son. And His bloody death, which He's already said twice in this short letter, where He made propitiation where the wrath of God against sinners was poured out upon His own eternal Son so that that wrath will no longer be against those sinners. Jesus' coming was not like the false teachers or teaching where the Christ Spirit came upon a mere human being, Jesus, at His baptism, but departed before His bloody death on the cross. John is saying this is the eternal God, as he said in chapter 1, the life came to us. This is the eternal God who became truly human, that the Christ is one and the same as Jesus, the man. That's His message. And and that's why He says in verse 1 of chapter 5 that we saw last week, that's why He is saying what He says, everyone who believes that Jesus Is, you know what that copula means, right? Equal to, Jesus is the Christ. That person has been born of God. There's the objective testimony and then he tells us that the function of the Holy Spirit is a little different than that. He bears witness internally to the testimony that we sinners hear. That's what he does. And now that's what he says in verse six to eight now. John then moves on to verse nine. Based upon what he said, right there now, so far, in verses six to eight, he then says, "If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater." For this is the testimony of God, that He is born concerning His Son." Now that if there, if we receive the testimony of men, all John is saying there, and it's, it's what you call first class condition, he's not saying, well, if we do or not. He's saying, we do! We human beings do this all the time. We receive the testimony of men. Right? He's just saying, since we do that, we know that, we test our trustworthiness, but we rely on testimony from human beings. If that being true, how much more are we to receive God's testimony? It is far greater and it is more sure. Then, he draws a conclusion from what he just said about the testimony of the Holy Spirit, here now in verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself or herself. That's why you believe. See, the purpose of the testimony is to bring people to faith in Jesus. And notice the way John puts it. To receive the testimony here is equal to believing that Jesus is the Son of God. Because if you receive the very intimate personal testimony of God the Holy Spirit about the Gospel, if you receive that, you by definition, believe that Jesus is the Son of God. A saving relationship with Jesus. A saving, ongoing, intimate relationship with God the Father. Right here. And adhering to the objective testimony about Jesus, the Gospel which has now been handed down to us in Holy Scripture. Paying attention to the words on the pages here, and having a real relationship with Jesus are inseparable according to John. They're so identical that John, in the way he wrote it in the original, he says, you believe, Not just that Jesus is the Son of God. You believe into Jesus. And then he says you believe into the testimony about him. Which means that the object of our personal saving faith, the object of our trust, is not just Jesus, it is the Scriptures which testify about Him. There is the objective testimony of the eyewitnesses in the Gospel, John is saying, and there is the subjective testimony concerning that Gospel by the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, and The Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. Verse 10, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. This is what in the history of theology has been called the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. It is directly connected to what this book teaches. It's connected to the testimony and the teachings of the prophets and of the apostles. The Holy Spirit in His testifying does not whisper in your ear, let me tell you what the Bible says. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, "Look at that page and let me give I'll give you some deeper meaning that you can't see with a good read." That's not what the Holy Spirit does. He doesn't change the meaning on the pages of the Bible. What John the man intended by the words he used is the meaning. And it doesn't change. Or any other human author. It means what it says. But what the Holy Spirit does changes your forever. It changes your eternal destiny. He comes And He opens the heart of your eyes to see. Yes! It's true! And you went, how come I did that at age 19 or 38 or whatever it was? Or 12 or 8? Why did I do that? Because the Holy Spirit testified to the objective testimony that Jesus commissioned to His Apostles. That's why. Since God has historically borne witness concerning Jesus being the Son of God, and since He has been testifying by the Holy Spirit about that truth throughout the centuries, and therefore John draws a conclusion about unbelievers. Verse 10 again. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself whoever does not believe god let me just I'm going to read this is what this is what it means it, it is crystal clear in the greek and it's a little fuzzy in your english so this is what he's saying whoever does not believe god His testimony that we just read about. That's the person who essentially has made God out to be a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son. John is saying that the unbeliever, in effect, is calling God a liar. It is a horrendous sin to not believe the Gospel when it comes to you. Now, about this testimony, the three agree, why does any of this matter? I mean, what does it all add up to in the long run? The answer is in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. The Creator of the universe, the Creator of your self-conscious existence, He has testified about how you can have eternal life. In verses 11 and 12, what we're going to see here in a moment, These verses speak to all dying people. Whether you are on the last 60 minutes of your life, or the last 60 years of your life, we are all dying. And these verses give the culmination of God's testimony, of God's witness to us. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life, the eternal life that He gave us is in His Son. Therefore, whoever has the Son has the life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have the life. John's testimony is clear. The way to have eternal life is to have the Son. How do you have Him? What does that mean to have Him? Do you have a coach? Some of you say, no, I have no coach. Some of you might have a baseball coach, or a pitching coach, or a hitting coach, or if you're a gymnast, you might have a gymnastics coach. If you have a coach, you have someone who can benefit you. you have, they, they have something you need and you're deriving if you have that coach. So in that sense, he says, you've got to have Jesus the Son. Because to have Jesus means you have what John has testified that he came for. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah who was to come. And God has testified this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. And he's the one who came by blood on a cross and made propitiation. You want to have the Son. Because that's what He offers. A pitching coach will offer you better mechanics. Jesus will offer you eternal life and give it to you. He's saying all the promises that you see in the Gospel. The promises to wipe away your sin. Your. your the penalty for it, to, for, to give you complete and everlasting forgiveness, to provide for you freely justification before the throne of God on Judgment Day, to provide the propitiatory sacrifice, the innocent lamb who was slain for you, to provide for you the future bodily. Resurrection. All of those things are summed up by John with the term eternal life. By eternal life, he does not just mean an extension of the life you have now. (laughs) That would be horrendous. I mean, the older you get, some of you are going to know this. Sometimes you think, 80, our years, life is too long sometimes because there's a lot of pain. He doesn't mean an extension of all the, the pains and the troubles and the disappointments and you just get to go through it forever and ever. And just your, you know, little joy here, little joy there, but it's never full. No, He means a whole new unimaginable e eternal, unending, resurrected life without the suffering, without the pain, without your sin. He means like what Jesus said in John ten ten. Yeah, the thief comes to steal, but I've come to give you life and to give it abundantly. Back to the last 60 minutes of your life. You want to know. You want to have internalized this passage. You want to know, as he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. You want to know eternal life sums up the entire Gospel. Here, You want to know Romans one. There is therefore now no, no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You want to know Romans eight sixteen to eighteen? The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Oh, if you don't know, flee to Him and know that eternal life is free. Notice how John put it. He gave. He gave. He didn't pay us. He gave us eternal life. But not everybody will have the Son. Not everybody, therefore, will have eternal life. That's what He says in verse 12. Whoever has the Son, has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God, does not have life. So how do you get Jesus to be your Savior, your coach? How do you get to be a person to whom God gives eternal life? How do you have the Son? It's right there in verse 13. I write these things Things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life John is absolutely confident that anybody who truly believes the message all of them have Eternal life. So the way that you get the Son, the way that you get eternal life, is to believe the Son. To believe the testimony of the historical events that He came by water and blood. That man was baptized by John and God spoke, This is my beloved Son. And that same human being who is identical to the Christ, the Eternal One, He is the One who was tortured on a cross until dead because God's wrath was poured out upon Him who knew no sin on behalf of others whom that One will be saving. And He confirmed it by raising Him from the dead. The church on earth is called to carry this objective testimony. To be true to what happened in history and what the apostles gave us. We don't need to recreate it, we need to keep saying it. And keep telling people generation to generation to generation of He came by water and He came by His blood and He made propitiation and The meaning of it is this, if you will believe there is a free gift of eternal life. That's the mission of the church. But, we can't play the other part of this text. We can't play the Holy Spirit for people. We can't create within them the internal testimony That is God's work alone. That's why we pray. And I hope your weekly prayer and fasting day for souls in the South Bay, for God to do this work, I hope it's been going well with you. That God would add to our number here at Sovereign Grace because of the internal Life giving testimony of the Holy Spirit. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. He says, Ask of me, and I will give. But as I close, the most important question in the world to every single one of us here this morning is, do you have the Son? We're all sinners. We have all been born as sinners. We have all been born as children of God's just and holy wrath. The offer is free. If one accepts and trusts Him, trust the testimony, because of the truth of the testimony that the Spirit is testifying to you about, you will have eternal life. And if we have, we are to know we possess eternal life now and all the future promises are made sure, and they're connected to everything that you're experiencing in this world, you can know the promise that God, your Father, is causing all things to work together for your eternal good. That is, for all of us who love His. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may be assured, you may know that you have eternal life. Father, I pray for those who are struggling, with their assurance of salvation, and yet they are saved, that You would cause their assurance to grow. That they would let this passage dwell in them. That they would chew upon it with their mind and their heart day by day. Father, I ask that You also cause each and every one of us to awake anew each day with the wonder of a child as we see our Bibles say that's God's testimony God put that together for me cause us to flee to read it to think about it to be moved by it to be overjoyed by it to be convicted To the glory of your holy name and to the joy of what it is to walk with.